0: This is Dr. Baba Kazizadeh. You are listening to The Smile Podcast, where I will be sharing with you my unique and holistic perspective on beauty, health, and wellness. Hello. <laughs> Millions of people have surgery every year.
1: Or you could just get a boob job.
0: Using targeted Botox can be a miracle.
1: Smiling like that is a skill. There. Your
0: surgery has been successful. Hello everybody and welcome to The Smile Podcast. Uh, I'm Dr. Babak Azizadeh and uh, we are continuing our Zoom podcast with uh, a very, very, very special guest, Dr. Netta Shami, who is not only one of the top ophthalmologists in the world, but a dear friend and uh, we've known each other since our college days. And... Uh, Welcome, Netta, and thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Bob.
0: So, uh, uh, we uh, not only are really great colleagues, but really great friends, and we have been for the last several weeks talking about coronavirus and its impact on the eye and ophthalmology, the practice of ophthalmology. Before we get into that, Netta, tell us a little bit about kind of your background so that, you know, our audience can know a little bit more about you and um, get to know all the wonderful things I already know about you.
1: Uh, Sure. Well, uh, a little bit for your audience. Uh, I have known Dr. Aziza this since, uh, as long as I've known my husband, he and my husband have been friends since a very young age, since 11, 10 or 11. And uh, um, we met in college when I was a sophomore in college and they were, as seniors, I know I look much younger than he does, but thanks yes. <laughs> to him and the Botox and the fillers, I look as young. <laughs> um, so we've known each other for many, many years. Um, I went to uh, UCLA obviously for my undergraduate training. Well that's my dog, and somehow he. Hi.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. Hi. <laughs>
1: um, that's both. So uh, we, uh, I went to UCLA for my undergraduate training and then UC San Francisco for my medical school training. I then uh, came back to UCLA for internal medicine, and uh, and then went to UC Irvine for ophthalmology. Did an extra year. One of the year. top
0: programs in the country.
1: Yeah, some of the some of the best programs. I was very lucky. And then I did a fellowship year uh, for uh, laser refractive surgery and corneal transplantation. And then after that, have kind of a. As you know, um, moved around for the best jobs, for jobs that allowed me to really grow professionally. And thankfully, my husband also, who is an academic uh, uh, surgeon, uh, we were able to find opportunities that really helped us both grow um, in our own careers. So I went to Portland, Oregon, and worked with one of the pioneers in uh, eye surgery, Mark Terry, at a center called Devers Eye Institute, and was there for many years. And then came down uh, to USC uh, where my husband and I both um, were lucky enough to get recruited together uh, to join the department and was on faculty there for six years. Um, I was the director of the um, eye center for USC that that started in Beverly Hills. I actually was involved in starting that process and and turned a lot to Bob for advice (laughs) on how to start a practice if you remember those um, oh, yeah. Calls, Locations,
0: right? where to go, what to do.
1: Yeah. Yes. Free consultation. Yeah. <laughs> but um, and then after that, uh, I have uh, now joined uh, Robert Maloney at the Maloney Shammy Vision Institute, which is really a near center in the Western United States for eye surgery. Um, I joined him as a partner, and it really was a move for me to grow further in my own practice and really focus on what I love in ophthalmology, which is surgical practice and surgical specialty. Um, It's a fantastic practice, and we'll talk about it more about the kind of things we offer.
0: So, yeah. So, uh, Dr. Shami and her husband are like the power couple of medicine they are like just so accomplished so amazing and i'm so lucky i know them and dr shammy and maloney are the power couple in ophthalmology so that is really really amazing and dr shammy is very humble but she is like speaks all over the world she's a key opinion leader for many many aspects of ophthalmology and uh in both the academic and industry so she is like really sought after and we're lucky thank you for taking your time to spend you know with us a few minutes to really what i wanted to do you know obviously this is a beauty health and wellness podcast we're going to really focus on health and wellness today especially with the coronavirus because obviously there is so much information and the key aspect i what i want to get get to is real science real real facts with coronavirus as it has to do with the eye. And there are certain aspects that we've, like over the past few weeks, everything's gotten shut down in terms of practice of medicine and so forth. So I want to get into a little bit of that and how that may also long-term not be the best thing for some of our patients. But before we get into that, what do you, from your, from an ophthalmology, from an expert ophthalmologist who deals with, you know, diseases of the eyes and understands the anatomy of the eyes, what are the key things that we need to know about you know, transmission with, with the eye and the diseases that it could potentially impact with the coronavirus?
1: Uh, great question. You know, as We all know the impact of coronavirus on the respiratory system and, and the common symptoms being you know, fever and cough and chills and such and more, more uh, uh, flu-like symptoms. Uh, what we what we know about its impact on the eye comes from the uh, Chinese data um, from their initial series and what we what we know at least has been published or reported is is a very small percentage of patients also had conjunctivitis and that is like red pink eye. Um, now, how often was it associated with coronavirus? It was one of the rare findings or associations, but it also makes you wonder if when, you know, when your, your attention is towards saving someone's life, you're not necessarily checking their eyes. And, yeah. and so I don't know, I think we'll have more data. Uh, we have uh, not seen any patients in our clinical setting that um, have had pink eye and associated symptoms that were suspicious for coronavirus. Now, you would imagine that if someone is right now is, is having pink eye, they may be you know, waiting it out and not wanting to go in. And if it is associated with coronavirus and it beca- and the coronavirus becomes symptomatic, they're not gonna be coming to the eye doctor with a yeah. pink eye, they're gonna go to the hospitals. So we don't know. Um, short answer to that is that we don't know. What we do know is that we need to protect ourselves against the potential transmission through the tear and through conjunctival um, transmission. If, if, you're, if you touch your eyes, for example, and you have coronavirus, touch your eyes and your tear gets on your hand. With that hand, you touch, touch a surface, could you potentially transmit it to someone else who touches it and touches their uh, face? Yes, potentially. So the short, uh, the short answer to your question is, we, what we've advised everyone is, you know, clean your hands before you touch your mouth, nose or eyes. Yes. And that is regardless of where you think your hands have been. I think the assumption should be if you you know if you're going to touch your eyes, if you're going to rub your eyes or touch your nose or your mouth, make sure you wash it or touch, you know clean your hands, sanitize it before you do that. It becomes a little complicated if you wear glasses and you you know you want to keep adjusting your glasses and such, and and those scenarios are a little uh, tougher, um, a little more difficult to make recommendations, because it becomes so habitual for people, you know, Uh, or it's, it's habit. If someone has allergies, they're constantly rubbing their eyes. So general advice is just try not to touch your eyes and don't touch your mouth and and, and nose and just your face generally without clean hands.
0: Now, as we turn, like for us as doctors, we're going to be, you know, soon going back into doing surgery and being involved and being in a setting where we're gonna have potential exposure. And some of the, some of the um, you know, concerning aspects, and this is my own curious question to you is, you know, we talk about aerosolized viral transmission. So for instance, if someone sneezes, someone, um, you know, when uh, patients are getting intubated, uh, we know certain scoping mechanisms can aerosolize and that kind of, it's almost like a vapor of virus that's in the air. If someone's not having eye protection, which most of the masks are just covering noses and mouths, how easy do you think that can get transmitted if it's aerosolized the virus to, through the eye and through the you know uh, conjunctival transmission? Or is that something that you think is a relatively low risk if you're not touching it?
1: Yeah, I would say it's a very low risk. I mean, it gets diluted with the tears, and um, viral transmission through the eyes it just historically has not really been the source of systemic transmission. Um, could you potentially develop conjunctivitis in response to the COVID, and then rub your eyes if they're red, and then eat something with your hands that are dirty? Yes, I can imagine. Then you self-transmitting the infection. And again, this is not based on science, it's just yeah. based on my own uh, late night, middle of the night, not being able to sleep, sleep thinking about <laughs> all the different ways that I need to protect myself and then tell my friends and family and my patients how to protect themselves. Um, we're making assumptions based on historical uh, experience with other things. Um, so I think in general, I would say, if someone sneezes, you are, you'll have a higher chance of catching it by breathing it in, um, or it, you know, uh, landing on, on a surface where you then touch and eat uh, with dirty hands, than you would by it hitting your eyes. Um, and uh, but if you have conjunctivitis, if you have pink eye, make sure that you don't use the same towel uh, as your, uh, yeah. you know, someone else you, you live with. Uh, that and that's regardless of COVID because pink eye is very contagious. And make sure you don't your eyes eat with dirty hands. So wash your hands and such.
0: And we have an immune system in the eye, right? That's why we don't get a lot of eye infections. Can you tell us a little yes. bit more about that or remind me? Because I just, I'm like, wasn't there some antibody that's always present in the eye? Or
1: Yes. Now you're really testing my, my knowledge.
0: I, was you- it IgA? It was one of the immunoglobulins <laughs> in there. See?
1: Yeah, it was real. This This is now
0: we're getting into the nerdy. This is like uh, you know that TV show. This is how I remember
1: you. This is how I remember you from UCLA from undergrad. (laughs) The the nerdy. And when I thought I knew everything I needed to know, Bob comes along and asks the question that makes you realize that you don't know everything you need to know. (laughs) So yes, there is. I'm going to try to sound intelligent here. Yes, there is an immunological reaction in the eyes and there are antibodies and uh, antiviral, you know, uh, uh, reaction in the eye. But I think, again, the key is even systemically, it it comes down. My own impression is that it comes down to the load. So how much exposure you have and the entry of that virus into your systemic, uh, you know, system. And which is why anesthesiologists uh, are at greater risks, because when they're doing intubation of a patient who may be a silent uh, carrier of COVID, even if they're not so sick that they're symptomatic, that aerosolization or, or the exposure is a lot more. Um, actually, ophthalmologists have also, in Italy, for example, and in China, the first person who you know was the one who um, talked about coronavirus was an ophthalmologist who unfortunately passed. Um, as a result of complications of COVID, so it's very, very, very clear in our minds, and, it, and it's a real source of anxiety for us ophthalmologists, as it is for ENT doctors, and of us who are have to be very close to the patient, and we can't uh, follow the six feet, you know, um, wow. distancing. And so, yes, there is a way of transmission through the through the through the conjunctiva potentially, but it's not. I don't believe and I don't think there's enough science out there to point at it being a prominent source of transmission.
0: Good. Just as a side note, uh, Dr. Shami, her at that time, you know, friend uh, and my best friend, Dr. Donishman and I were all microbiology and molecular <laughs> genetics major, which is the the basically coronavirus major essentially at that time. And we were so
1: that was yeah. that was
0: 20 years ago actually. God. No, oh my longer. 35 years 30 years ago. <laughs>
1: oh my
0: gosh. <laughs> For me. Yeah. So so yeah, so uh, we'll, we'll get nerdy once in a while. Okay. <laughs> so now, you know, we're about to embark on getting back into our practices. Okay? But before we get into that, I believe there's also been some harm to patients because patients are so scared to go to the ER or call their doctors because they don't want to get coronavirus. And they have, you know, there was a study that the number of people, young people or uh, middle-aged people dying from strokes has gone up. Heart attacks has gone up because they're just so worried about going to the ER. Are there any ophthalmologic emergencies that people should be aware of? That look, you cannot take this. This is something that you got to go to the ER or call your ophthalmologist because it's a matter of hours before you can like, you know, really get into trouble.
1: Yeah. Very good question. Um, ophthalmology emergencies. Um, let's talk about chronic diseases that need to be managed routinely, right. such as glaucoma and macular degeneration. Those are site threatening conditions that if they are not monitored on schedule can potentially, you know, have a detrimental, you know, detrimental effect on, on vision. And so patients with macular degeneration who have been getting treated on a you know, routine basis should definitely speak to their um, retina specialist and ask for uh, what the schedule should be. And, I, and I'm not a retina specialist, so I don't know what modifications have been made in those treatment protocols, uh, but like a macular de- degeneration patient who is getting injections to prevent worsening of the macular yeah, degeneration yeah. on a monthly basis, you know, they may probably be able to stretch it out, but again, a retina specialist uh, would be able to give guidance on that. A glaucoma patient would need monitoring of their intraocular pressure. Usually if you're controlled and you've been controlled prior to the COVID, you could probably stretch out the monitoring to every three months or every four months, again, under the guidance of a specialist. Uh, But if you were, for example, at a point where you weren't yet controlled and your pressure was being monitored more closely, then I would you know, highly advise against not going in because you could potentially lose your vision if, if you avoid going in. And um, you know, as, of, as physicians, we've all taken major steps in making sure that we um, protect our patients and protect ourselves, and we close the clinic to essential visits, but those patients who need close monitoring, um, there are ways of going in safely. Now, there are doctors though, who have closed their clinic altogether, even to um, urgent or emerging cases. Um, and usually those, those offices though have an alternate place for the patient to go to. So I would say if you had an appointment and you feel that you have, you know, chronic glaucoma or macular degeneration, or you know, you have it, you should definitely call and find out what the next step should be. Other things that can happen emergently where you didn't have a problem, and then all of a sudden you're having vision problems like loss of vision or flashes of light or flippers. Uh, those could be indicat- indicative of either retinal detachment, which is an emergent problem, or potentially uh, a vascular event, like a blood clot to the eye. Those are emergencies. And those, again, if you have an eye doctor, you should go see your eye doctor safer at the eye doctor's office than yes. the emergency room. Um, but. If the eye doctor is closed, maybe call another eye doctor or ask ask your own eye doctor for advice. And then and then ultimately the ER. Um, I tell you though, the emergency rooms, um, they are incre- incredibly prepared. Yeah. But what, I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. I think in California, we're very lucky in Los Angeles, we're really, really lucky um, in that we haven't had the kind of surges that they had in, Los, in um, New York. And so, For example, my husband who's at USC, he actually says that the hospital is about 30% empty because what's happened is that the hospital has really um, not turned away patients, but has has given guidance to patients who are not urgent to stay home and to open room and space for COVID patients. And then COVID patients are entered in a different entry point. ERs are split up into COVID versus non-COVID. So I would say... The the last one is going to the emergency room for eye eye emergencies, but at the very least, if you feel like you're having sudden vision changes, you should call your eye doctor or call an eye doctor locally and see if you can get into them.
0: Yeah. Some insider info for those of you who are listening and viewing this. It's really important to have an internal medicine doctor that is well connected and accessible. If there's one thing to learn from this coronavirus, I think that is the, That is, if I were to give you one advice, is have an internal medicine or a family medicine doctor or a pediatrician for your kids that are accessible. If they're not accessible, you should look for other doctors because right now is the time that if, for instance, you have an emergency eye issue and you could call your internist and say, look, my eye, this is happening. That's a two-minute discussion. That doctor, they should have a network of physicians that they can reach out to and say, okay, you're going to go to this ophthalmologist's office to see Dr. Shami in one hour or in 30 minutes, and they're going to see your eye. That is how I think the medicine that we're, we're practicing will change because people don't want to go to the emergency rooms. And way after coronavirus has changed, people are not going to want to get their routine or urgent care that they can get outside of the hospital within the hospital system. So, this is really, really important. I don't know if you have any comments on that, but this, I feel yeah, like absolutely. We'll get emerging change.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then, I think the other thing that's, that's emerging and that we've implemented into our practice, and I know you, you've done it even before because of your international patients, but it's virtual medicine. And um, it, it's uh, you know, very safe to contact your doctor. And for those doctors who have uh, the capability to offer virtual um, visits, to have a virtual visit and say this is what's happening, or ask your questions and get guidance. Um, but that's not necessarily for emergent scenarios. But in cases where you have a question about urgency of your eye problem, that could be potentially one way um, to to get uh, advice and recommendations.
0: But yeah, and but if you feel like there's something missing, like you have uh, a change in vision, you have chest pain, you have you feel like oh my god, I'm slurs. You have to go to the, you have to call 911. You cannot be like, well, I don't want to go to, you know, the ER to get coronavirus. The chance of you getting a coronavirus is going to be far, far, far lower than you having some long-term problem if you're not going to the hospitals and so forth.
1: If you're going to the grocery store, you're at higher risk than going to the ER.
0: Yeah, the ER has, yeah, exactly. So, Netta, what do you how do you foresee and you kind of touched upon it a little bit virtual consults and so forth how's the flow going to be someone coming into your office what do you foresee is going to happen so they feel safe coming to the doctor's office how how are you going to implement some changes and i know it's changing as we speak every day there's something new coming up but how are you going to do that and how are you going to resume back to doing surgery you do amazing corneal surgeries you do LASIK, you do cataracts, you do all these amazing advanced and routine care that people need. How are you going to get back to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting, very timely question. We we just had a meeting this morning, four hour long meeting um, with my team, um, uh, just talking about exactly those steps. I uh, spent all day this, uh, all day yesterday and Saturday, writing up um, uh, SOPs or, or just standard uh, operating procedures on how we're going to do this to not only give our patients the real sense of safety, but also our staff, because our staff, you can imagine, um, are anxious uh, about the possibility of coming back and what risks they're putting themselves in. So things will need to change. We are actually really excited about the silver lining in all of this, where it forced us to think about how we can become more efficient. There's so many inefficiencies in medical practices that had just stayed on and maybe had even become more inefficient through the years just simply because that's how it's always been done. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and what as an example, the whole check-in process of how many times have you gone to your eye doctor and you sat there in the waiting room and you know layers after layers of, of paperwork, uh, much of redundant paperwork. Um, what we're going to, for example, do in that for to combat that issue is essentially have it all digital and make sure that it's the patient has filled it out, and I think patients will be motivated to get that done because they want to minimize the amount of time they sit in the waiting room next to someone else. And so we're going to require the paperwork to be filled out ahead of time. We're going to do a lot of the counseling ahead of time before the visit. So there's going to be a lot of this type of Zoom meetings or uh, video meetings of those steps that don't require uh, a direct exam of of the eyes in our case. we're gonna also, you know, everyone's gonna be wearing masks for uh, for a, a long time. I think um, we are gonna be wearing medical grade masks. We're gonna ask our patients to be wearing masks if they don't have it. We're gonna offer it to them. We're putting shields up um, in in our clinic anywhere where there would be less than a six foot distance between the patient and the front desk, for example. And that's it's unfortunate. Uh, um, but it's, I think it'll give both the staff and our patients a sense of safety. Um, our exam process will become more streamlined where we're, we're going to lessen the number of tests we do. And again, this will be to the benefit of the patient and, and to our clinics and our processes. Do we really need every single test? And we literally sat there today and talked about these tests that we do and we put patients through you know five different diagnostic tests Yes, it seems really futuristic and modern and and amazing, but do we really need the value of the de- of the uh, data that comes out of that and you know it's interesting when you sit down and talk about it, you realize well, some of it is redundant and is it really useful for every patient so we're shortening that whole um, uh, process and then and then during the exam uh, again we're going to spend uh, less time uh, uh, in unfocused discussion, and a lot more time with having patients come in empowered with the information ahead of time, so their questions are thoughtful and very directed. And then we're gonna end with a link to information videos and and, and content that will be specific to their condition.
0: Digital, blending of the digital with the personal.
1: Absolutely. And I think before we used to kind of um be down on the idea of using digital in medical care because we felt that the face-to-face was so critical in that patient relationship but i feel like this time during this last six weeks we've learned that you could have we've gotten used to having
0: very Mm -hmm. kind of
1: personal interactions with people on video Um, and and that you you know like you and i have been friends and we have had a friendship long-standing I actually do really enjoy these video conferences that we have. I feel like, you know, it expands on our on our friendship um, and with patients, I have found it to be really, actually intimate in a sense. You know, when I have a patient that I'm doing a teleconference with and they're, sitting, they're living and their dog like my dog came in no, and, and their puppy sitting there, it's, it's incredible.
0: It's it, unbelievable.
1: It, and then their, you know, their daughter or their husband, helps with the discussion and asks the questions and they feel like they're in on the, on the um, consult. So
0: there's definitely positives. The other day I had a consultation with actually a patient who lives a virtual a Zoom consultation with someone who lives in Los Angeles, but their dermatologist who had referred her to me wanted to be on the conversation. And with the permission of the patient, it was exactly like this the three of us were talking the dermatologist was asking questions patient was and it was just such a an interactive and positive you know discussion that i was like you know that would be amazing if i'm referring someone you know to a doctor and you know how great would it be if i could help my patient you know help them make the right decision by being more knowledgeable so it was really i think there were some changes but you know in the past i think regulations have been really difficult. I think that's why the digital world wasn't, you know, taking on some of the doctors who bill insurance, and you know, are they can't like do videos because they couldn't bill for those charges. So those will all change and improve upon over the next. Well, that's,
1: but years. that's, it's interesting, I thought that too, and that was always kind of my own personal um, excuse for not offering virtual or not even exploring it, but in exploring it now, I realize that the, the, was- the coding and the ability to, to build was actually was put in place in 2015. Uh, but it wasn't until we were forced to consider yeah. it that, that have we thought about it. So we're actually are going to add this as a permanent part of our practice, where we're going to offer the option to patients. And it's going to help us expand the scope of our practice. It'll help, especially in Los Angeles with traffic, if a a patient wants to come in for LASIK consultation, for example, much of that initial consultation for a LASIK patient is talking. Uh, It's less about the exam and much more about talking and talking about the options available. So we're moving towards offering uh, virtual consults for LASIK consults to expedite that process for the patient and and then gathering information ahead of time and then have the patient come on the same day uh, as their LASIK. Imagine going from two visits two or three visits to one visit only one virtual visit and then one visit for the surgery yeah. a lot more efficient um, the patient can do it during their lunch hour uh, at work instead of having to block out a whole half day to come in for an exam amazing that's amazing
0: good now on a personal level how have you kept yourself busy what have you been doing these past a, few weeks a ton
1: of webinars <laughs> so, you know it's it's interesting, initially when this all started, I had a whole long list of things I wanted to do and how I'm going to read however many books, and I'm going to organize every aspect of of my of the house. Uh, I've organized a few closets, and definitely our pantry is looking like a catalog <laughs> uh, you know, page out of the container store. Um, but, um, you know, it's incredible how the time flies by, and... Uh, I, I think the first two weeks I spent uh, panic attacked um, and just, you know, constantly reading up about it and trying to educate myself about it and really to to, uh, to a, you know, to my own fault in a sense and causing more anxiety to, for myself than I needed to. So I wasted the first week and a half that way. And then after that, I kind of fell into a groove of trying to use the time to educate myself with webinars and all those opportunities. Of education and also to share my knowledge through webinars and such as this one yeah. uh, they beautifully planned and uh, and then uh, spending time with the family yeah, I've really enjoyed uh, being home watching my kids through their uh, zoom classrooms and and helping them in that process and being able to see them earlier in the day I've cooked every night and only uh, ordered in three times this last uh six weeks which i'm really proud That's of amazing. Um, yeah so i i don't i think i've cooked more in the last six weeks than i have had in my entire life um and you know exercising and trying to connect stay connected with family as much as possible and friends and through zoom calls and um we had our first dinner gathering last night with my parents coming over over through the side, yards, sitting outside, everyone brought so, their so, own so, food and everyone yeah. took their own trash home. <laughs> we really That's tried so to amazing. keep, keep the distance, you know, just, I think what, what I have found incredible about this time is how resilient we all are. I mean, I sure didn't think that we're going to be sitting here and talking about the silver lining of this experience yeah. for those, and I have had friends who unfortunately have lost loved ones as a result of this. And I, I don't want to minimize the trauma and the incredible loss that this has caused for so many people out there. Um, knock on wood. I, I feel blessed that we haven't had our you know, immediate family and, and circle of friends and, and, and my work family affected by this, but um, the resilience has been really awe-inspiring for me um the the fact that we're most everyone i spoke to has found ways to find opportunity through this crisis Ah. whether it's opportunity for personal growth um you know career growth um connecting with friends or just with your own um mental health (laughs) and sanity and 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 all of that so there's reason to smile i'm going to go back to your program here because uh, I think in any experience there's uh, beauty and um, reason to celebrate our wellness. Did yeah. you like that? Yeah. I brought smile, I love beauty, it. and wellness. I love it.
0: <laughs> and our health. We've got to be thankful for yeah. our health. So I want to thank you for taking time. I know you're like you have a lot of things going on throughout the day and I really appreciate it. And I think that our, um, viewers and audience is going to appreciate it. those who know you obviously already love you and those who don't I think will see how smart and brilliant and uh, humane you are so I appreciate your time and um, I look I- forward to seeing you guys really soon and for our viewers yes. and listeners thank you so much please make sure that you subscribe and leave comments and Netta thank you again
1: thank you so much for having me
0: All right, you have a great rest of your day. Thank
1: you, you too.